Welcome to Movie Ketchup, a podcast where two friends work on reducing their movie backlog. Each episode, we catch up on a previously unseen movie recommended by the other. I'm Leanne. And I'm Greg. And we're What Dreams Are Made Of. Today, we're talking about Overnight Delivery and the Lizzie McGuire movie. But before we get into the movies, let's catch up. Uh, What's happening with you? Not too much. Uh, As you know, we are still in the middle of this wonderful pandemic. Uh, though I have still been doing my D&D sessions every Friday. It's been nice because we've had one of our players who's been in Europe is back in Canada. So we've had another person Skyping in with us. And we just did our second to last session. So next week should be the big finale. We're doing Curse of Strahd. So they are just at the roll initiative moment where they're going to fight Strahd, essentially. I'm <laughs> kind of glad that this campaign is going to be over and excited to do a new one. It's been really rough running a weekly game out of a book for me. I'm very much more a um, dungeon master who likes to do homebrew stuff off the cuff, uh, a lot of improving, a lot of just coming, whatever comes naturally to me flows natural through the game. I don't do a lot of pre-written adventures. And the flow of it just has not been great for me. And I feel like my players seem to be having lots of fun, but I feel like I'm doing not a great job every week, but they seem to have a lot of fun. So that's all that really matters. I can relate to that. I'm not really like running Storm King's Thunder for you guys, but at the same time, I'm not not running Storm King's Thunder. So like a lot of our sessions every week is just like, I'm not doing like a ton of planning and it's a lot of just like me (laughs) BSing. And it seems like for the most part, people are having fun with it. But at the same time, I feel like I don't really have a hard plan in place as well. So yeah, pre-run adventures... I thought it would be a lot easier. That's actually, ironically, the reason I got Curse of Strahd and was running it, because I just didn't have enough time every week to kind of plan. So I was thinking, okay, I'll buy a pre-written adventure. Mm -hmm. It'll have everything in the book for me, and I can run it out of the book. So all I have to do is read a few chapters ahead, as long as I'm a few chapters ahead of my group, which is what I've heard other people do. They're like, as long as you read a few chapters ahead of where your group is, you'll be prepared, you'll be fine. Well, Curse of Strahd isn't that kind of an adventure, I guess. I don't know how many are like that. But it essentially, Curse of Strahd is not linear in any way. You open the book and it basically says, hey, this is Strahd. He's a bad guy. This is Barovia. This is where the adventure takes place. It can start anywhere. Anything can happen. They can go anywhere at any time. There's no storyline. Strahd just randomly appears and does things. Roll every single random encounter table in the world. Everything's random. Anything can happen. And it's just like, uh... I thought I was going to have like a story where I read through a chapter and I'm like, okay, this is the chapter we're going to do today. (laughs) I thought it was going to be pretty linear. So it's been a struggle, (laughs) but my players have been having fun. There's been some good moments and I'm excited to jump onto something more back into my homebrew world next time. Yeah. Even running like the short adventures is really challenging because there's a lot to kind of keep track of and Like, if you don't have a good grasp on, like, what everyone's character motivations are for the NPCs, then, like, when somebody asks a question, it's like, um, I don't know. Yeah, I ended up ditching almost all the NPC um, sections and motivations and personalities that are written into the book. And I just took their names, their races, etc., and just gave them all new personalities and motivations and things that I mostly made up on the fly. My favorite right now is my one NPC who's kind of, I guess, like the PC NPC or whatever. They're like the one I'm mostly playing that's been traveling with them the whole time uh, is obsessed with tents. Mm-hmm. It's just this random thing that happened at some point, And now they like, 
it's like their safety blanket. They're just constantly setting up their tent all the time and like complaining about their tent and talking about tents. And it's like this weird quirk that just happened. And it, now it's kind of the, one of the funniest parts of the campaign. I love it. So what's been happening with you recently? Uh, most recently, yesterday, kind of on a whim, but not really. I bought a countertop dishwasher for my apartment. Exciting. Yeah, it's something that I've been wanting for a long time, even though... Sometimes I think about the fact that I had the opportunity to move into an apartment that had a dishwasher and I opted not to. There's lingering regret there. But um, I had been talking with my cousin over Easter dinner about how he had recently bought one and it's something that I'd been thinking about. And then I was watching a YouTube video where they were cooking in a portable dishwasher yesterday. So just on a whim, thinking of this previous conversation, I looked it up and it happened to be on sale. So I was in a position where I was capable of buying it. So I did. And I'm having a little bit of buyer's oh, no. regret. I think it'll be fine. It's just, um, I had a whole debacle setting it up. There's like a couple of extra hoses that were yeah. included with it. So I ended up having like a video call with my dad last night to sort of help me figure out what the heck is included in the box. Because I had already watched a couple of videos on YouTube of other people who were setting theirs up and they had the two hose connections that I had, but I had these like extra hoses. So I was a little I bit like confused about, things, yeah. yeah, I was like, these people didn't have that and I don't have any like extra connections and I can't remove this one other thing. So like, I don't really know. So calling my dad was a last resort. So we kind of decided this is probably what it is i did like a test run on a cycle so that we could determine you know what the drain hose was that's kind of what the issue was it was like i have these two extra hoses and like one of them is probably a drain hose but like also there's something that came attached to it and then i had a few dishes that i just ran through the on a light cycle and this is where my buyer's remorse came in is like i had a small amount of dishes and the cycle on the machine is like an hour and I was like, I could have washed those dishes yeah. in like 10 minutes, <laughs> like not even 10 minutes. But I think it'll be good. I've, I'm, I've made the decision that I'm just going to like load the dishwasher with dishes as I use them and then run it when it gets full. And I think it'll be worthwhile that way. Uh, also, it's like just ever so slightly too tall to go under my cabinets. So it ended up on these two stacked Ikea lac tables that oh, I have that I use as extra counter Ikea space. Table. You gotta love it. Yeah, it fits perfectly on there. And, but it didn't mean that I had to kind of rearrange the rest of my kitchen, which was a bit of an annoyance. So I thought I was just going to shift my toaster oven over onto the counter right next to where it used to be. But I don't think that's reasonable because like the hoses for the dishwasher when they're not in use are coiled up on top. And it just seems like kind of a hassle to have an appliance like in front of where they need to go. So anyway, I'm sure I'll figure it out. And that you know, it'll be a good investment in the yeah, long run. Sure. Yeah, someone who had a broken dishwasher for, it was probably almost a year it was broken and was washing things by hand. As soon as it's fixed, you go back to it. Like, yeah, this is nice. Even if it takes a long time, mine takes a long time too. Just to set it and forget it, it's going to yeah, be good. Yeah, I, I spent a good chunk of my childhood washing dishes by hand. And then I've been living in my apartment for five years where I've been washing dishes by hand and I hate it. And I'm notoriously bad about leaving even a small amount of dishes until it's just like okay I don't have any counter space and usually it doesn't take that long to wash them but it I still hate it it's such it's such a it is a chore but like it feels like more of a chore when you have to do it every single day yeah so should we talk about movies then let's get into it hi this is trips and Radich. leave a message 
Trips, are you there? It's Kim again. I got back five minutes after you called. I was out walking the river. Is that what they call it these days? Cindy went to visit her boyfriend for Valentine's Day, so I get stuck dog-sitting her dumb chihuahua. Everyone's been bitching at me for the past two nights. Can't wait till she gets back. So dog-sitting? Frick is a dog? When you get in, will you call me back, please? I miss you, and I'm starting to worry. Sweet Christ, what have I done? Okay, so for this episode, I asked you to watch the 1998 release, Overnight Delivery. And this movie stars Paul Rudd, Reese Witherspoon, Christine Taylor, Sarah Silverman, Larry Drake, and Tamara Mello. It was directed by Jason Bloom, who also directed the movie Biodome, which I don't know if you've ever seen. It's a, like a 90s Polly Shore movie. Uh, Jason Bloom has also directed a number of episodes of Veronica Mars and... Also, a number of episodes of I Zombie. I also chose to make note of the writers for this movie, specifically to mention a couple of things that they have worked on, because I think that will really lend a sufficient explanation at the outset for the totally. nature of the movie that we're going to be talking about and the kind of humor that's in it. So one of the writers is Mark Sedaka, whose biggest writing credit is King of Queens. And the other is Steve Bloom, who directed, sorry, who wrote the movie The Sure Thing and the Netflix movie The Perfect Date. So The Sure Thing is very similar to Overnight Delivery in that it's about a man and a woman who are college students and they're on a road trip together. The rest of the premise is sort of loosely different. Those should give you like an idea of what Overnight Delivery is in terms of a movie and also sort of like what kind of humor exists. Um, the movie itself is about a student named Wyatt Tripps, who, believing that his longtime girlfriend has cheated on him, pens a scathing letter which is scheduled to arrive on Valentine's Day. But at the last second, he learns that he was wrong, resulting in a frantic race to prevent the package's delivery. So our characters, we have Wyatt Tripps, who's played by Paul Rudd. I was thinking while I was watching this, is Paul Rudd somebody that like you're not super in love with? I know there's a lot of actors that you don't particularly care for. I, <laughs> well, this movie might have changed my opinion, <laughs> but I generally love Paul Rudd. I've never seen Paul Rudd in a role like this specifically, maybe. I always go to like the... I mean, the big one would be like Clueless and then stuff like Ant-Man more recently. And then like, I love you, man. I love you, man. is probably the closest to this as far as a character I've seen Paul Rudd play. I but forgot I that he was Paul in Rudd. this. And then when I was watching it, I was like, oh, like, does Greg not like Paul Rudd? I forget. So you might not like it because of that. But <laughs> he's no, he's not anyone named. It's fine. And <laughs> um, then we have Ivy Miller, who's played by Reese Witherspoon. Uh, she is another college student at the same school that Trip attends, and she moonlights as a stripper, and that is actually how Wyatt initially meets her. She's smart, abrasively witty, and she is 100% too good for Wyatt, and we'll get into that as we talk about the movie. Yeah. And then we have Kim yeah. Jasney, who's played by Christine Taylor. Um, she's Wyatt's girlfriend. They were boyfriend-girlfriend all throughout high school. And she attends university in Memphis, and she is the recipient of this package. And then there's the character Turan, who's played by Sarah Silverman. She plays uh, one of Scott's classmates, who, when we see her, she has a bit of a chip on her shoulder because uh, Wyatt gives her some pretty harsh feedback during one of their English classes together 
which adds a complication to their efforts to prevent the delivery of the package. And then we have Hal Ipswich, who's played by Larry Drake, and he is the Global Express delivery driver who is on his very first solo delivery trip and is like too committed to company policy to uh, have any sympathy for Wyatt's situation. So preliminary thoughts before we talk about the actual movie. Did you like it? Did you not like it? What are sort of some first responses you had? Uh, yeah, I would say like I hated this movie. It definitely, well, the last one, uh, It Could Happen to You, was like a really pleasant, like going into this, like I don't know if I'm going to like this. And then I'm like, oh, I, this, this is really cute. I like this. I went into this thinking like, oh, Reese Witherspoon and Paul Rudd, slam dunk. And I was like, eh. There's things I really like about this movie, and I thought a lot of the premise and like the overall structure of the movie and the characters, like it could have been good, but for me, it kind of dropped the ball on the characters specifically. But overall, I still liked it. I laughed a lot. There's a lot of great slapstick in here. The hijinks that they get up to in this movie on the road trip are very mm-hmm. typical, if not elevated, road trip um, type movie humor. I'm always here for a road trip movie. So I definitely enjoyed it. A little bit of a letdown for what I thought it was going to be based on the cast. The reason I recommended this movie, I think really boiled down to the dynamic that Paul Rudd and Reese Witherspoon have basically like the whole road trip part is most of what I remembered about this movie because they have really good acting chemistry and uh, really play well off each other uh, and all of the, the interactions and uh, everything that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. And um, so that was sort of like the the basis for why I, when I thought of this movie and recommended it, it was like, that's kind of why it's like good character dynamics and kind of a, a fun, silly story. It's exactly like 90 minutes. So it's a nice, easy a watch and pretty much know what to expect from the time sort of the premise is set up for you. You, you have a really good idea of what to expect. So speaking of premise, um, the movie starts with Wyatt and Kim. It's Christmas. They're in the car together making out. Uh, Wyatt really wants to have sex with Kim, but Kim has been putting the brakes on that pretty hard for the entirety of their relationship. And um, she gives him a gift. It's a heart necklace that's magnetic. So she has a matching one that's made of steel and it's supposed to be a reference to their song, which I didn't make note of because I thought it was really cheesy. And the heart necklace is important for later in the movie. And then uh, a couple of months later, he's back at school. There's a girl who's in like the dorm next to him who seems like every other day has like a different guy in her room to have sex with. And his roommates comment on the fact that, you know, when a, a girl gets to college, like she starts like having a ton of sex, which Wyatt doesn't agree with. And then he calls Kim and Kim's roommate makes a comment on the phone that suggests that he or that Kim is having sex with some guy. He thinks that he's being cheated on and he just loses his mind about this and goes to find his friends at the club at a strip club to let them know that this is the case. And um, this is where he meets Ivy and he intervenes when his roommate tries to grab at her while she's on stage. And when she finds out what happens to him, she ends up helping him. Um, pen a pretty scathing letter and basically orchestrates the entirety of everything that happens after that. Um, Ivy's pretty much the impetus for for that. So in terms of the initial um, events leading up to the road trip, uh, what did you think? So with the intro to the movie, 
Well, the first thing I thought was when we open up on Kim and Wyatt or Trips. I don't even remember him being called Wyatt. It was just constantly yes. Trips, which reminded me a lot of Happy Death Day, which we both recently watched together and how she's always called Tree. And I'm just like, that's such a... And they make they call them by this name so much. It feels like they're calling them by their first yeah. or their, their name a lot more than a regular movie would. Just like Trips, Trips, Trips. It was, it was weird. That makes sense that his name is Wyatt Trips. Anyways, I thought that was Portia de Rossi at first in the role of Kim, and it took me a while to figure out why I thought it was that until I looked up the actress. She plays Sally, Portia de Rossi's rival in Arrested Development, and they kind of have a similar look. Wouldn't be mad if this was Portia de Rossi, though the Kim role is pretty small. I could have used a little bit more setup with her, actually, because we're supposed to believe that they're high school sweethearts who are going to stay celibate and true to each other for the whole four years they're apart in college. I thought that was kind of laughable with how it was set up, which did kind of play to Tripp's very naivete, very innocent. He's dumb. He's just dumb. That played kind of to that side of his character. But I could have used like a little bit more of like why he was so in love with Kim, because we get a scene where he just wants in her pants. And I don't really get why he'd be celibate for four years waiting for her if that's like the right reason he likes her. So I didn't get a ton of reason why he was so in love with this girl that he was going to wait four years for. But apart from just like the setup of it all, I like how quickly we jump into uh, him meeting Ivy, which there was a very weird scene, but a great scene in the strip club where there's like barbed wire lining everything. And it's like this very weird strip club that they just... Uh, stumble into and she's doing her whole sexy Catholic girl thing and it was like a good I thought it was really funny when they're being kicked out after the altercation with Trips's uh, roommate and the club is called Ground Zero and the bouncer goes we have a reputation to maintain like your strip club I guess (laughs) and like it's it's like hard concrete exterior there's like not really any other businesses around like a certain reputation I suppose (laughs) Yeah, if you're lining your your strip club with barbed wire along the runway, it's like they're reaching over constantly to like get to these people, and it's like to hand them money. Of like, you're gonna cut yourself with all that barbed wire. I don't know how you felt about this, but I thought it was very weird that they just they threw out Trip's friend for being drunk, and then threw out Ivy for like retaliating against drunk people grabbing at her. Uh, supposedly, this isn't the first time she's like fought back against some club uh, patrons, I suppose. But they threw her out on the street two seconds after the drunk guys who were clawing at her. Like, that's irresponsible to throw her out on the street half naked right as you throw out these rowdy guys. It's like, mm, something's going to happen. Yeah, I did find it surprising just insofar as, like, if you're going to have a bouncer there, the bouncers are really there to, like, protect the performers. So yeah. for Ivy to basically be fired, like, on the spot over this was very strange to me. But I don't know a whole lot about strip clubs and everything other than like what I've seen on TV. So what do I know? But as far as I understand, you know, that's the point of the bouncers to protect the performers Mm -hmm. and they didn't really seem to do that. It was more punishment for her. Yeah. And then as soon as they get kicked out, they have this like immediate kind of connection where Trip is like bawling his eyes out over his girlfriend who he thinks has just cheated on him. And she's like, hey, you're drunk. Let's go get pancakes. Just don't talk about your girlfriend. He goes, okay. And then we cut right to him just 
bawling into his pancakes like i loved her and she's just like oh god what have i done one thing i thought that this movie did really well and this is one point and i won't mention too many of the other ones as until we get there but it does really well with setup and payoff so you'll have a lot of scenes where somebody will like say a thing and then like that immediately happens or it's like as long as you don't cry over your girlfriend and you know that he's going to be crying over his girlfriend so to have that uh, immediate cut to Wyatt sitting in a diner crying about Kim while Ivy like graciously allows this to happen while she eats is just really good. One thing I thought was the strong suit of this was like kind of the filmmaking and the pacing of it all was pretty good. It's more just the characters mm-hmm. that I had problems with, which we'll get into more as we go. But like right here at the beginning is when it started to kind of creep on me that, okay. Wyatt trips as our main character doesn't really seem like a very engaging character to follow on to a whole movie with because he is kind of awful. At this point in the movie, I was just kind of like, okay, he's hamming it up. He's Paul Rudd. He's, you know, doing his whole crying thing. I'm like, I don't really get why he loves this girl so much. We haven't really explored that. But it was kind of at this point that I was like, okay, might not like him. Ivy's great. I'm here for Reese Witherspoon as this character. As soon as they have this, like, scene with the pancakes, she suggests, like, let's go write her this breakup letter. And he's like, oh, let's fax it. And she goes, no, we're not faxing it. We're going to write this letter. We're going to overnight it to her. And she goes ham on this letter. He's going to write this whole, like, eloquent thing that's, like, real shitty. Like, you're not a very kind, gracious person. You're not very nurturing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I actually made a note that the letter that Wyatt originally drafts gives me strong that guy in your MFA vibes where like if he wrote something in a creative writing class, it would definitely be like that kind of constant reference to like her breasts or something like that. That would have given me more character for him if that had turned out to be his character was like out of touch English student guy. That would be something I got very little character from him apart from I'm Paul Rudd. That's fair. I mean, we don't really get a lot of anything about what he's doing at school. I think that he's an English major. That's kind of the impression that I get, but we don't get any confirmation of that. I guess, yeah. He's in like an American literature class. Yeah. Uh, But she's great. She immediately picks up this letter and writes the whole thing. You snotty little pig. I was delighted to learn of your infidelity. Your puritanical attitudes towards sex were just childish and insecure. My stomach turned the last time we made out and your gut flapped against me. Those cellulite-packed cactuses that you call thighs with the razor-sharp stubble called to mind a fifth-rate porno actress that I once jerked off to during the tenure of our sorry marriage of convenience. Now I can finally tell all my friends how nauseating you are to mate with. Rot in hell. And then as like an extra seal, she reaches into his wallet and pulls out a condom because, of course, he just she just knows he's going to have a condom in his wallet and gets the security guard guy who let them into the computer lab late at night to spit in it so they can stick this used condom with a Polaroid picture of them together naked in with this whole letter to send to her as like sweet revenge type thing. It's brilliantly done. And she just like without hesitation does all this. It's so great. And tells you a lot about her character. Like, we get a lot of character really quickly with Ivy. She's got a lot of depth mm-hmm. to her compared to, I would say, a typical yeah. lead. In it's a worth noting that the reason she asked the security guard to spit is because he's been a longtime smoker. So the idea is that, like, whatever he spits in there is yeah. going to be real gross. Yeah. So they write this letter. He coughs up this gross loogie into a condom. And then they go to overnight express it. 
um, so that she gets it on Valentine's Day. They get home, and then the next scene, Wyatt is waking up, and Kim is returning his call, and he's listening to the voicemail, where she is clarifying that the Ricker, who he had interpreted as being a guy, is apparently the name of a dog, and has this immediate realization that he fucked up, that he's going to send this scathing breakup letter to this woman that he desperately loves and is planning to marry, and uh, leads into what I've basically referred to as a comedy of errors because they make a number of attempts to prevent the delivery of this and it gets foiled at every turn. Yeah, the, the slapstick in this whole middle section of them in these weird car chases trying to get this letter back every time they run into this guy. Like the slapstick was super good. Some of these action scenes with the cars were really good. Mm -hmm. I was really impressed with that whole part of it. He and Ivy stop at a gas station and he's trying to convince her to drive him to the airport or to wherever he needs to go. And she says, you know, even if there was a sign from God, like I wouldn't agree. And literally at that exact moment, the driver of the Global Express truck like pulls into the parking lot and they, you know, they even have like a brief conversation about sort of like where that falls on miracles um, or signs, I guess. And that leads into the, the good scene where they break in so that Wyatt can try and find the envelope. And then we have, you know, the slapstick scene of Wyatt being thrown out the back of the truck on the, the delivery doors and falling onto the hood of Ivy's car and being tossed back in. And it was like this amazing thing where in any normal situation, people would just pull over. Yeah. <laughs> like if you have an actual person well, yeah. like hanging off, off the, the back. And I wrote down, like, even if he broke into your car and wants to steal the package you're delivering, literally murdering him by driving crazy on the highway, trying to get him to fall off. That's murder. That's way worse than not delivering your yeah, package. Yeah, absolutely. Like, even Ivy is just, like, gunning it to be close to it. It's like, everybody just needs to pull off the yeah, highway. Well, she's driving. She's trying to distract him. So she's, like, standing in her convertible with one hand on the wheel while she's trying to pull yeah. up her top to flash him. It's just like, oh my God, you're going to crash. And the whole thing was done at like this high speed thing on like a busy freeway. It was very chaotic. And like nobody else on the highway is doing anything. I mean, I guess <laughs> no. in 1998, what are you going to do other than just like observe this happening? It's not like <laughs> cell phones were a popular yeah, it's thing. It's the States. This is every day on the freeway. <laughs> yeah, Maybe. this is kind of when we get uh, their first... I think it, well, it's one of their first like big blowups at each other because Trips every five minutes stops the movie to point at Ivy and go, I don't need you. I'm a man. I can do this on my own. You're a slut. And just like slut shames her multiple times during the movie. And we need to talk about it because it was bad. Like if you need, if you feel the need to slut around and he is sex shaming her and slut shaming her the entire time. And it was bad. I mean, he does bad. it sort of like one specific time, and she very quickly says, "Look, it happens you a can few times. Like it happens towards the end too. Like at the diner when he refuses to sit with her, and she like, yeah, we'll get there too. But yeah. I made note of a few times in here uh, later on in their road trip when he's like changing her dress and everything too, or whatever. Like there's multiple times where they have conversations, and he basically just straight out slut shames her." Well, yeah, and I mean, there's the one specific conversation they have where he calls her a slut, and she 
gets really serious with him and says, you can judge my job, you know, being a stripper and the fact that she's having a relationship with one of her professors. Yeah. He brings that up a lot. Yeah. But she's like, you know, don't ever call me a slut. So, you know, she's really like, you know, I'm aware that some of my choices are maybe not everybody's cup of tea, but like, that is not a word that you get to use with me. And he does, you know, do sort of like a mea culpa on the slut thing later on, but he's an imperfect character as we know. know. I I like imperfect characters often. Like, I mean, my favorite character in Game of Thrones is Cersei and she does way worse shit than Trips does, but there's always something redeemable in those characters or something that still makes you want to root for them. Like makes a good anti-hero, but like I did not find anything redeemable in him other than the fact he was being played by Paul Rudd, which Sean drew sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't make any argument that Wyatt is an anti-hero or make any grand comparisons between Overnight Delivery and Game of Thrones. (laughs) They're about the same quality. (laughs) (laughs) There's no bitterness lingering there at all. Justice for Cersei. May she reign. But I mean, given the the genre of movie this is, you know, it's this high school comedy sort of rom-com type thing, which is always very like on the high end of how over the top characters are supposed to be portrayed. So like, it's not always good. Like his, whenever he has, um, like he has tantrums over like stupid things all the time that actually involve him, like, you know, stomping his feet and like screaming, like he's really a child and so much of uh, these interactions and Ivy is, you know, very graciously standing there waiting for it to stop. And then be like, can we move on now? It's, like I'm doing a lot. Like she's, she does so many literal gymnastics, it's crazy. like bending over backwards to she help him, even though she doesn't need to, like they literally have the only known each other. Yeah. And like, I was thinking about this a lot because I know that timelines for rom-coms are like a big issue for you. And they have literally only known each other for like 24 hours. By the end of the movie, they've only known each other for 48 hours. And Ivy just does the most for him. Like there's, you can clearly do this in a rom-com. I've seen enough rom-coms to know that the asshole guy, like Hugh Jackman in uh, the one we watched two times ago. Someone like you. Someone like you. He's a dick, but you see layers. You get a little bit of backstory. You know why he's doing it. He comes around. I never got any moments like that with with Trips. It was just Ivy fell in love with him, which, spoiler alert, they, they end up together. Yeah, she somehow during this road trip falls for him, turns to him and says, you know, Trips, you're a good guy. And I almost spat out my Diet Coke because I'm like, really? Is he? What what has he done that's made you think in the past two days that he's a good guy? You're, he's chasing down this letter that he wrote to his girlfriend of four years that, again, these long-term girlfriends and, like, you think you've got a chance. And it's like, what in this relationship has shown you that he's willing to give up his four-year or whatever? Or I guess, I don't know how long they've been together. It's been years in high school. It was all of know. high school, so it's been at least four years. The time, the timeline's not super clear. Like, what is she seeing? I don't know. I I really did find her sudden daydream about like her and Wyatt together was very abrupt. Like there was no no gradation whatsoever between her just like being alone. There was no cuddling in bed with Hugh Jackman moment where like that would do it. Like right, there was no moment where it was like, yep, that's the changing point. That's the turning point in this relationship where it goes from we hate each other to. There's that spark. We had that connection. I think um, it really comes down to 
like the archetype in these types of movies of like this kind of entitled white male who has some measure of loyalty and is willing to put them through some level of humiliation that for whatever reason is attractive to this female character, even though in reality it'd be like... He pushes her car off a cliff and they go to jail. <laughs> like, I don't get it. Yeah, but I mean, he is on the highway, like, hanging it. off the back of the truck, and then he dresses in women's clothes, and he walks, like, probably a mile down the road with, like, his bare ass hanging out <sighs> from where he got dragged on the road. Like, you know, he deserves a little bit of sympathy. He's just so sad. No, I, I, I understand where you're coming from, yeah. but... It was purely just like a all they needed to do is write in that one to two scenes that they have in the other rom-coms where they have that moment where you see why and it's like it's just like they forgot to put that scene in the movie between or right before she had the daydream they had that one scene where like they have a big fight and then it's the middle of the night and the car broke down and he storms out and she's like why are you making me do this and he's like i have a tragic backstory and she's like oh i love you now there wasn't like a moment, which is all that it really needed, I think, yeah. to like get it a little bit back more on track. <laughs> a scene that realistically doesn't make much sense regardless, but at least helps yeah. create a little bit of cohesion between... Their car broke down on the highway, and then we were at a boiling point, and then it just... Things come out, and like he said what he wasn't willing to say before. And I, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. She needs to get a, a ten-word telegram from uh, her father about... <laughs> you know, <whatever. laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, where her car runs off the cliff though that was an interesting one i was wondering what you thought of that because essentially he takes a nap and then when he wakes up she's taken a detour that he is very upset about because he was very clear to stay on this freeway uh and they're having this whole argument while they're looking at each other and not the road and then she runs the car through this construction zone and at the, to the edge of a cliff and trips like falls off and is hanging off the side of her convertible car above like a ravine and she basically says, I'm not going to pull you up unless you say you love me. Because he's just been taunting her about her having a crush on him. Yeah. And it's this weird thing where she's like refusing to lift him up. And I guess the joke is that he was only like a few feet above like a little stable cliff thing where he could fall to. Yeah. And then he falls down, gets back up. They have a huge argument. And then he like pushes her Jeep off the cliff by accident. She <laughs> punches him and he falls back into the, oh, yeah, the yeah, car. That's right. And because it's right on the edge and it's not a very heavy vehicle, it just kind of goes tumbling down the hill. I was just thinking like, does she get insurance for that? Like what's going to happen to her? And I loved that car. Like it was adorable. Yeah. It was this rundown Jeepy thing. It was some sort of Volkswagen convertible type thing. I meant to look up what oh, kind of vehicle it was, so it was but it I was never purple. did. It was super cute. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I thought going back to like the fact that Ivy's feelings for Wyatt developed so abruptly, it just, it felt kind of weird for her to be like, no, you admit that like you're in love with me. And like, there's literally no uh, foundation for him to make an admission yeah. like that. Even when, after they get arrested, when the police officer who is being weirdly insightful oh, yeah. is like, yeah, when he looks at you, I see like his lip quivers. I'm like, I don't think that means yeah. anything. But also like, we have not seen any evidence of that up to this point on screen. Yeah. And I wrote down for that, uh, it reminded me a lot of the conversation you like to have a lot where it's like, it's not until someone tells the boy, the straight boy, the straight girl, like, you're a straight boy and a straight girl, you should be in love. And then they're like, oh, oh shit, you right. should be. It like kind of felt like that. It exactly fits that criteria of somebody pointing out that the, they like each other, and that's when uh, it really starts yeah. to develop. 
It's like you've liked each other this whole time. <laughs> there's a possibility of a relationship here, and then they both go, "Oh, you're right, there yeah. is." And that they end up in jail, we should say, because the uh, they're they get caught gunning and dashing. The car's off. fallen. Yeah, the car fell off the cliff. They walk to a restaurant, and he sits at one table and orders celery and bread, and is all upset and refuses to sit with her, and she orders everything. Um, and like uh, waves him over eventually and they have a nice little conversation and and then she's like okay we're gonna die in a dash uh, all the stuff i bought yeah i don't have the money for it <laughs> and then they get arrested for that and it was one thing i liked in this movie was ivy's constant like rebel side coming out like how she picks the lock on the back of the delivery van how she's like yeah we're gonna dine in dash now her crazy illegal driving on the road like she just had like a fun edge to her uh, that i really liked yeah. Her whole character is really, really good. Excited. The Dine and Dash scene is another example of the setup and payoff that I th- I really enjoyed in this movie. Because, well, why it's hanging through the bathroom window climbing out, uh, Ivy goes, we're not going to get caught. And then immediately the headlights of the <laughs> yeah. cops that are sitting outside flash up and they go, you're under arrest and they're arrested. So there's just really good setup yeah. and delivery for a lot of the jokes. Oh, for sure. Like, there was a lot of the filmmaking in this movie that I liked. It was mostly just, I guess, the characters and the writing, but like that that setup and payoff was just like like I wrote down at the very beginning one of the first notes I took was like these necklaces better come back up later it better be a good Chekhov's gun moment and of course we get the really good yeah. payoff at the end which we're talking about stuff like that was yeah. really good so after they get out of jail Wyatt calls his roommate who's able to bail them oh, yeah. out <laughs> and after this they steal a truck from some guy who's like too drunk to be driving anyway at Ivy's request. Um, at Ivy's protest, actually. Oh, yeah. She's, sorry. Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At Wyatt's insistence. Yeah. And they are able to get to the school. But before this, they discover, they come across the delivery driver again. And in another effort to prevent the delivery of this, uh, Wyatt siphons the gas from the truck because his thought is if it doesn't have gas, then it's not going to make it there. And at the same time, the delivery driver is um, having an argument with a cook inside the diner he's at about his eggs being cold. And he takes a cigarette that the cook is uh, smoking and he tosses it and it happens to ignite the gasoline, which is all over the parking lot and blows up the truck, which apparently doesn't impact the truck's ability to drive. It has like another separate gas tank, I guess. I don't know. It's crazy. There's it's crazy. Ha- it's like- it's so 15% of a vehicle at this point with how much of it's been blown apart. And it's amazing because he's so obsessed with like making sure that these packages oh, get great. delivered, but he just leaves this parking lot. Not the packages, like... the one package, the rest oh, of yes, them, the it. one package. They've all burnt up. <laughs> They're all gone. They've basically all exploded, but he managed to grab hold of that one package and he has was like carrying half that of one, the like... signing slip is left yeah. uncharred. He was carrying Wyatt's package yeah. like inside his jacket. Like he was determined. But there were definitely packages that were in the parking lot that could have been salvageable. But like, whatever, I guess. So following this, they finally make it to school. And of course, there's like an army of delivery trucks because it's Valentine's Day. Everybody's, you know, ordered something for their girlfriend or boyfriend or what have you. And we have a moment with Wyatt and Ivy about you know, their road trip and sort of their experience. And like, if this is a thing that he really needs to deal with. And for some reason, I forget what exactly happens. There's like a breakdown in the relationship at that's this point. I think it's just because Ivy's like decided she's fully in love with him. And the fact that the reality of Kim is so close that she's trying to create some emotional distance. Yeah. 
And then there's like a hilarious scene of Wyatt like racing across campus, chasing the delivery driver, or which turns out to be a different delivery driver who's delivering Wyatt's original Valentine's gift for Kim, which are these really sappy handwritten notes and the generic uh, roses that he had already told Ivy he was having delivered. And finally, we get to Kim and the delivery of the package. And we get payoff on the magnetic heart necklace and it all culminates in, I would say it was pretty satisfying at the end. You know, he gives Kim this big kiss. It's very um, emotional or passion filled anyway. And she's like never experienced this much passion from him. She's very surprised. And then after kissing her, he realizes that he doesn't actually want to be with her and he breaks up with her anyway, which I thought was really good. I thought it was good that he realizes this on its on his own and it's not like he and ivy like share some illicit kiss along the way and that's what makes him realize it's like being physically present with her after going through all of this and realizing like it wasn't really worth yeah it. like i get it he gets all the way there and it's the whole thing that like he gets to her he's got the package everything's fine he kisses her he's like oh oh never mind like just like all that he's just done just to have like a oh wait never mind i don't love you even though i went to jail and dumped this girl's car off a cliff and like all the crazy things happen is like oh well uh sorry kim bye and just kind of pieces and she's like super confused and then like as he's walking out the door he bumps into another guy and they're they're two necklaces that are identical magnetize up because clearly she's given the exact same necklace to this guy as he has and he just goes oh you're whatever the, what's the name the ricker the, yeah, you're the ricker and he's like oh uh, yeah why and yeah it wasn't actually just a dog's name it was a guy all along the ricker is a really stupid nickname but i guess it's so is trips <laughs> yeah but i mean at least trips is like Wyatt's last name like it's not unusual for people I to go by their last name all i could think was is his name trips because they go on a road trip because I mean, of, probably yes, but because of the also, movie, uh, like we were talking about with Tree and Happy yeah. Death Day, because she's like a tree, she grows. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh. <laughs> yeah. It's like we get it, but it's a little too on the nose. One thing I really liked about Kim's response to the breakup is like she is offended because Trip is, as we've already discussed, he's like not really anything particularly special and he's breaking up with her. She's supposed to be like this, yeah. you know, top shelf girl to strive for. You know, she would be his trophy wife. She's Sally Sitwell. <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah. So she's like, you're breaking up with me. Like she's really sort of horrified at the yeah. fact that she's being dumped by somebody like white trips which really speaks to like how little she valued their relationship and was basically just somebody to fill the time for when she wasn't at school with her actual fuck buddy the ricker i guess but like why is she keeping up this whole ruse the whole time then like they're constantly calling they have like this whole celibacy thing and like he's got all these pictures of her in his room and it's just i wanted a little bit more about their relationship i think because there was clearly something there that I think that we weren't necessarily told as to why he was so obsessed. I don't think like the celibacy thing was, was he just like a backup for her. Then she was just holding on in case she didn't find something. I better. mean, it's possible. I don't like the celibacy thing was, she just didn't want to have sex with him. 
Like the implication is that she was definitely having sex with somebody else and it just wasn't him. Was that the implication yeah. at the beginning with the whole like sappy necklace? No, thing no. And... But like the comments that his roommates and everything make about, you know, yeah. when girls go to school, the, the suggestion is like she guess, definitely but, like. But that's just a bunch of dumb jocks saying no, that I... we never see her. But yeah. when we finally meet the Ricker, like I think that's supposed to be the implication. Yeah. It's like why does like the safe boyfriend, but then you know yeah. the Ricker is like the exciting like sexcapade kind of. I don't know. He seems also like a very mayonnaise boring white boy, but whatever. Yeah. I feel like you're asking a lot from this movie, considering most of the movie is really just about the road trip part. And everything else is just like two and a half scenes, really. Yeah. One more scene in the beginning that fleshes out what the dynamic is between the two of them and their relationship. If we're supposed to be buying into this whole four year celibacy plan, we'll be with each other after university. Like I needed more of like a sweeping love story between them or something at the beginning to buy me into that. And then I needed one more scene in the middle of the movie, at least that bought me into why Ivy has fallen for him and then maybe one more scene at the end for why he's bought into her. Like, it just needed a few more beats for me, I think, like that throughout the whole movie. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, there were also a couple of things um, that I feel like didn't age well. I mean, there are a lot of things about this movie that didn't age well that really, like, the let's fax it. Yeah, the slut shaming. You know, he says, let's go to, like, the computer bank when they're going to write the letter. Just, like, so many things that, like, really. Computer bank. Love it. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of things that just really place this at it. No one had a pager. (laughs) Yeah, amazingly. But, you know, just like a lot of things in this movie that really set it in a particular. A lot of payphones. A lot of payphone use in this movie. Yeah. But um, there's when they're taking the picture for the picture or for the package. And Ivy says, you know, like, be quiet or I'll scream rape. I'm like, "Mm, not great. And also uh, why it makes a joke about like going to prison and like prison rape and just like sort of those very tired jokes being included in there. It's like, I know that the movie is from like pre 2000s and like even today, like those things come up, but not quite in the same way. It was a lot more tame than most like raunchy road trip movies would be at the time for sure. Like a lot of Euro trips and stuff like that. Like there was a whole like weird sex road trip movie genre, which I guess this kind of is in that genre, just on the much tamer side. Yes. So any final thoughts on this one? I'm glad Paul Rudd came out of this and learned to tone down the Jim Carrey because he was very Jim Carrey in this. And the whole time I'm just like, ooh, just tone it down a little bit from the Jim Carrey of it all, Paul Rudd. You're overacting a little bit too much. I was a little shocked, honestly, with that because I love Paul Rudd and he was super annoying in this. Yeah, that's my only take. Okay, so on the ketchup meter of Perfect As Is, could use a little bit of ketchup or douse it, where would you land overnight delivery? This is probably for me between a could use ketchup and a douse it. Like I said, I think like a lot of these rom-coms, even as like, like I'm fine with a generic formulaic rom-com, like it could happen to you is a good example of that, that had like all the kind of necessary scenes I just felt like this was missing a few of like the necessary scenes you have in a rom-com to tie it all together. But I'm going to douse it. I think honestly you would have, I would probably have to go in and change a lot to turn it to a good movie. I think you would only have to change a little bit to turn it to a decent movie for me. 
but there's some real annoying shit and a little bit too much slut shaming in this for me. Yeah, I think that's probably a good place to put it between a little bit and Delsit. Yeah, definitely some things that didn't age well. And there are certainly some plot points that could uh, use a little bit of filling in. I can't believe you're going to Rome for two weeks all by yourself without me, without me there with you, without me with you there, you there without me. Mom, I think that's about all the combinations of those words you can make. Lizzie, this is a big day for you, sweetheart. Ugh, he's going to quote a dead guy. As William Shakespeare once wrote, be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, but some have greatness thrust upon them. Thanks, Dad, but I'm just trying to get through graduation. Greatness can wait till this nightmare's over. So for our second movie, I picked for you the Lizzie McGuire movie. This is a 2003 release starring, of course, Hilary Duff, as this is the Lizzie McGuire movie. It also stars the entire cast of the Lizzie McGuire TV show, minus a notable exception in Miranda, who is not in this. The director of this movie is Jim Fall. He directed uh, not too much else of notes, mostly just shorts. Um, but he did direct... Uh, the movies Trick and Wedding Wars, which are, I've seen both of those, and I was shocked to see that he'd done those and a Lizzie McGuire movie, because Trick and Wedding Wars are both queer indie films of sorts. Uh, Trick is especially very different than this movie, but that's always kind of interesting. Uh, the tomato meter rating for this one is a 41, which I don't know if that deserves it, but probably does. The summary for this kind of more or less, it's just a long episode of the wonderful hit TV show, Liz McGuire. Lizzie has just graduated from junior high and after a particularly embarrassing event at graduation, um, is off to a school trip on Rome, hoping to forget all of that. While she's there, she meets a famous pop singer, Paolo, who mistakes her for his singing partner, Isabella. Uh, with Isabella currently out of the picture, Paolo hatches a scheme involving passing Lizzie off as her, leading to kind of a whirlwind trip through Rome. So I picked this one for you, Leanne, immediately after finding out you had never seen it, just kind of on a whim, like, yep, this is up to the top of the list. We're watching this next, mostly just because of childhood kind of nostalgia or I guess teenagehood nostalgia of being obsessed with Hilary Duff, being obsessed with the Lizzie McGuire show. And I remember, I don't think I loved this movie when it originally came out, but I had a lot of fun with it. I specifically remember, of course, the big finale musical number. I remember the fashion montage, and I remember all the travel porn of Rome being very good. And I remember kind of hating Paolo, but that's about it. So what do you think of this one overall? I thought it was cute. Um, I didn't watch a lot of Lizzie McGuire when it was on TV. Like, even Stevens was sort of more of my formative Disney mm. TV show. I think I'm just like, ever so slightly out of like the right age range for Lizzie McGuire. So I did watch like a handful of episodes, probably more than a handful, but it wasn't something that I was super into, but I thought it was a really cute movie. Ultimately it was like a good way to end the series. I was really confused initially when she said she was graduating and then it turned out that she was in like junior high graduating. And I was like, Oh, but big graduation for junior high, though I went to a private Christian school that was K to 12. So I don't know if that's like a super normal thing probably is, but it just seemed like a lot for junior high graduation to me. 
I think when I graduated from elementary school and went to grade eight, because I didn't go to middle school or junior high or whatever, um, when we were living in Vancouver, we just had like a thing in like the lunchroom at school and our parents were there. Yeah, that's like, basically I think what I had. It wasn't like a whole thing. <laughs> I remember we had our award ceremony and I won the, uh, went to a Christian school. So I won the award for the fruits of the spirit of goodness. So I, w- I won the award for goodness, which... I still can't tell you what that means, but I've apparently embodied the fruit of the spirit of goodness when I was in like grade seven. Anyways. Yeah, yeah that's very big. Yeah, let's not talk about that. So this movie <laughs> opens uh, kind of with Lizzie graduating from junior high. She has this big ceremony. Her family's there and it turns out that the girl presenting uh valedictorian style presenting the speech margaret chan or something like the overachieving perfect girl is sick and can't make it lizzie is the secretary of the uh student body so she is currently up because everyone else at the top of the food chain or the top of this line can't present so it's down to her she has this horrible horrible messy awkward thing where she stumbles around rips down all the curtains and it's just a disaster. Such a disaster, it makes it onto Good Morning America and CNN. And it's just, yeah, super cringeworthy, which is very much Lizzie's MO. She is the manic pixie dream girl, kind of clumsy, but not in a cute and pretty way. It's always very much awkward. <laughs> so after this, she gets on a plane, jumps to Rome with her school for this two-week field trip, runs into this cute guy named Paolo, who mistakes her for Isabella, his singing partner. Well, let's not get to Rome just yet, because there's a lot to unpack before yes, yes. we but get before there. Before we uh, unpack, just like the whole beginning part kind of ends with Paolo, and she's now going to fake being sick to kind of run away with Paolo and explore Rome. So that's kind of the first big section of the movie. So what did you think? So my, one of my favorite things about the graduation scene is when Kate shows up and she immediately like recognizes that Lizzie is wearing a familiar outfit beneath her graduation yeah, her, like, robe. And, like, and she very loudly like calls Lizzie out for being an outfit repeater in this full auditorium and like nobody responds because <laughs> literally nobody cares. I'm a notorious outfit repeater. Not everybody has the luxury of wearing a different outfit every single day. Yeah. So it just was a really nice sort of taste of schadenfreude for, for Kate to have this moment of embarrassing Lizzie that really had no response. It's just like her scathing remark you know doesn't have any weight in this particular oh, but kate doesn't care no She's she doesn't just... care but you know she really is moving from a scenario where her words carry a lot of weight in middle school to high school where like maybe that's not going to be as big of a deal with respect to the speech i was a little bit frustrated on lizzie's behalf because like if margaret was that sick and she was going to have to give a speech like they could have given her some notice that she was going to be doing that and like also probably could have given her a copy of Margaret's speech to specifically read for her to show up. And then they'd be like, you're giving the valid Victorian speech right at the last second. I wouldn't be able to give a good speech either. Yeah, That's pretty par for the course for her school, which seemed wildly unprofessional at every turn. <laughs> good to know. Um, I also really loved like the increasing level of news coverage of the graduation ceremony. Oh, yeah. Like was your graduation on good morning America. And then as an aside later on, it was like, Oh yeah, I saw that on CNN and it's just like, this is not the kind of thing that would ever make national news. But the fact that within this particular universe, it does yeah. is just so funny. I wrote that it was 
ridiculous, but slightly less ridiculous after the whole balloon boy situation that went on with CNN after this, I believe, where they covered this like boy floating in the air in balloons that was a hoax or whatever for like a full few days was like constant news coverage. I'm like, yeah, CNN's kind of they'll I cover remember anything. That. So maybe this is as crazy as one <laughs> would think. I did also write down that it seemed pretty ridiculous. Um, I also really thought it was so funny the parents when they're at the airport um getting ready to leave for rome and they are harassing the principal uh ms ungermeyer they're like make sure my whatever my kid's name is doesn't have anything with gluten or garlic and i was like you're literally going to italy like are you joking but you know being really (laughs) coddling their children like make sure you do this for my child and also can like just for one hot second like, there is no way on earth that that many students would be taking an international trip with, like, one chaperone. There should be at least three parent chaperones on this trip. Oh, God, for so sure. So it's like, oh, yeah. But it's it's Mrs. Ungermeyer. She's, like, three people in one. She's she's so on top of everything. Yeah. And her little, like, speaker box thing that she wears. Oh, so good. I love her. Miss Ungermeyer stole this movie. Every scene she had was so great. I have a couple of notes regarding Kate's wardrobe throughout this movie. And one of them is with respect to Kate's travel outfit. It's like she's dressed like a 40 year old woman. She, Cause she's like <laughs> yeah, in this like, like beige, like skirt out. suit. And it's like her hair and she's got the pearls and everything. She looks like a 40 year old wine mom. Like Kate, you are 13 years old. You were dressing well and truly beyond yeah, your age. Everyone has that very consistent style. Like Lizzie is always dressing like she went, thrift shopping from about like four years ago fashion it's always just slightly outdated she wears a lot of like bedazzled denim which i'm obsessed with i think that makes sense because it speaks to it makes sense for her character lizzie's like economic class i did find that a lot for the for kate too i think kate it, it, it gives me like she's trying too hard constantly Yes, absolutely. Um, I did find with like Lizzie's outfits was like they're very early 2000s, but like not as early 2000s in like a painfully obvious way as like some of the stuff from like Someone Like You or even like some of the other movies that I remember from that that period of time where it's like it's obvious that's where it's from, but not quite as like painfully obvious. Like if if somebody was wearing a similar thing today, like it would be a cute outfit. It wouldn't feel like they were trying to... I actually loved a lot of Lizzie's outfits in this movie. The whole opening fashion montage, and she's got like that cute little like matching socks and top with like the black skirt or whatever. It's like all the like the weird pink and black design. She's got some really cute outfits. Yeah, like the little newsboy cap type things. I'm obsessed with her newsboy caps that she wears. So obsessed. There is someone at work where I work that wears like a newsboy cap type thing that's like a pale green that looks yeah. exactly like something that Lizzie McGuire would wear. And every time I see him at work, I don't know who he is, but I constantly want to turn to him and like make some quip about Lizzie McGuire. It's very rude, but it just gives me joy every time I see it. You should do it and see how they respond, <laughs> but like try not to be um, mean about it. Yeah. And then once they're in Rome, so they get settled in at the hotel and she's being roomed with Kate, which, of course, is, like, a big concern for her. And they go to their first stop on their trip um, to go to see a fountain. I didn't write down what the name of the fountain was. I don't know the if you Trebech- did. Tri- oh, God. Tribonacci Fountain or something? Something like that. 
something like that. It's not that long of a name, but anyway, it's a bit, a famous fountain where people like make wishes in the fountain and everything. And she sees Paulo there and he pursues her after she sort of politely sit, rebuffs him to this gelato store where the rest of her classmates are. And all of these people like rush up because they think that she's Isabella and take a picture with her. And this woman just like thrusts an entire wheel of cheese into her arms. And I'm just like, Oh, an entire wheel of cheese is like hundreds of dollars. So the fact that Isabella, she's a I know that star. The fact that just like this entire wheel of cheese, that's the one thing I couldn't help focusing on. And she's just like, and they're heavy. Like, I'm surprised she's even capable of holding it. It's the Trevi fountain, yes. Yes, yeah. And then also, like, I really appreciated and supported Lizzie, like, declining the invitation from Paolo. She understands that she's, like, 13 years old. She's on a school trip. She literally just met this guy. Like, he could say that he's a famous pop star and, like, she might see a picture of him, sure. But, like, literally she has no reason to go with him by herself in a foreign country. Like, can you imagine the liability the school would be under if she went with him and like, they never saw her again. Like she's being very mature and being like, thanks, but no thanks. Well, Lizzie's always been very risk averse, which is something I very much appreciate about Lizzie. She's realistic and risk averse, which is good. Yeah. And in so many of these like movies and TV shows, the main character is just constantly doing like the most, bizarre shit without any consideration for consequences and then you've got gordo over here who's being like the biggest enabler you know lizzie didn't we say when we were gonna come to italy that we would be here for adventure which gets referenced at least three more times after this which is so funny he's clearly in love with her and like he's got pain where he's like oh i don't want to send her off with like this i don't want to call him cute because he's kind of creepy but this like pop star paulo but like does it anyway because she he wants her to have this big adventure but I mean, it's like, Gordo, be, you're a realistic person. Yeah. Like, he's the most realistic person at the end of the movie when, I don't, I'm not going to jump ahead too far, but, you know, like, he yeah. is a very realistic person in, like, the details of the scenario that Lizzie gets pulled into. It's like, why are you pushing her into this? Like, she needs to have an adventure, sure, but, like, not just with some random ranger that she just met in a... Well, and this is exactly where we needed Miranda the other member of the trio from Lizzie McGuire that it's just not complete without Miranda. Miranda is the one that was going to push Lizzie into this. And clearly that's probably what they meant if they written a script of this with her in it, because she would be the one where it's like, Oh my God, Lizzie, you need to go with this cute Italian boy and have this fabulous time. And Gorda would be back there being like, what? No, Lizzie. And they would be like the good angel, bad angel thing. And I think it would have worked a lot better. We just really needed Miranda. I think maybe if they had played Kate like that. Yeah, that would have been good. I do like what they did with Kate I do, later, yeah. I like that there still. was some indication that there was maybe like a re-blossoming of a friendship happening there. Yeah. But if she had been the person to fulfill that role, then it would have made more sense. Because otherwise, like at every other step, Gorda was like being very reasonable about things with Lizzie and Paolo. So for him to like right at the outset yeah. be like, yeah, well, you know, like, didn't you say that you're going to have adventure when you're here? And I was like, yeah, you're going to have adventure together, the two of you, not like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. One note on Kate, her line, uh, I'd eat carbs if an Italian boy bought them. Oh for my me. God. I wrote that one down so too. Good. I just wrote same though. <laughs> like I would eat carbs regardless, but especially if an Italian boy bought the first. I think I made a note. Like what did she eat the whole time she was in Italy then? Uh, I mean, not everything in Italy is pasta, but like there are a lot of 
carb adjacent things in Italian food. Uh, so after we have the whole chance meeting with Paolo, we jump into the part of the movie that turns into this kind of like montage uh, Paolo and Lizzie sneaking away to have these wonderful trips through Italy and plan this whole big elaborate scheme. Essentially, she is pretending to be sick so that uh, Mrs. Ungermeyer will like leave her alone. And then she immediately sneaks out of the hotel, meets up with Paolo, and they go do some fancy thing. And every day, they miss wherever Miss Ungermeyer is taking the, the class, they bump into Lizzie, and Lizzie has to go, oh no, and like run away before Miss Ungermeyer sees her. And it's it's great. It's pretty this silly. This section of the movie is like so funny to me because Paolo's like, oh, I want you to see Rome the way the Romans do. But he like only takes her to like these giant tourist locations, which is not usually the case when somebody's like, oh, we want you to see x place like the people that live there usually you go to like less yeah. touristy places places that are off the beaten path so there should actually be a lot less uh opportunity for them to uh overlap and like possibly get caught but of course for the sake of the narrative you know there always has to be a chance that lizzie's going to get caught out um there's the one scene where she's on yeah. i think it's the first or second it's on the first first day that they're out and she's on the Vespa with Paolo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Gordo sees her and he starts like drawing attention to the fact that like something hinky is happening. And I think if he just like hadn't done anything like from the back, like you wouldn't notice Lizzie just like on the back of this Vespa. If he just hadn't drawn attention to, I don't know. Miss Dunbar has a very high passive perception score. I don't know. She's yeah. But I mean, smart. it wasn't until he she seems to notice everything. He starts trying to yeah. be like, oh, we need to go like back and like do this other thing that she's like, well, what are you up to? So like if yeah. it, he, you know, wasn't dropping so many major hints that there was something that she should be paying attention to that he doesn't want her to be looking for, then Lizzie probably would have gotten away with it. So essentially the whole scheme that Paulo comes up with is because Isabella is uh, and her and him are having these creative differences. And he says, I want to go make real music, but. Uh, she doesn't want to in all this and she's off on this island kind of like pouting and we're supposed to give this big award away at the uh, video music award thing international video music awards so we're gonna dress you up like her and you can come present the award with me and she hesitantly agrees only to find out later that it's not only the presenting award but they're actually supposed to perform a number together and it's okay because Isabella always lip syncs. And so you'll just lip sync to her part. And that's kind of the whole scheme we're going with through this section. Whenever they reference to Is Isabella being on the island, it's like, oh, she's on the island. It makes me think of the movie that Ewan McGregor was in with Scarlett Johansson called The Island, which is about clones of celebrities. But also, I think probably they're saying the island the way that like you and I say the island when we talk about Vancouver Island. Like it's probably a specific yeah. place. But every time anybody like, oh, Isabel is on the island, it sounds so ominous. Like she's on this very... It's probably Crete or something. Sicily or something like that. Yeah, probably something like that. But every time they're like, oh, the island, that's exactly where my brain would go. <laughs> Lizzie could very well be a weird clone if she's on the island. Like, who knows? Oh, my God. The whole, like, doppelganger thing is hilarious to me because it's just so clearly Hillary Duff in a terrible wig and it's like oh it's great though I love it the big big billboard of Paolo and Isabella where it's just this terrible CGI thing with this bad wig yeah. and it's just 
great. The other thing she was like, apart from a very passing resemblance between the two of them, like Lizzie is so different from how Isabella is in literally every other way that people who know her well, just being like, sure. Yeah. She was on the Island. So now she's like a completely practicing her American accent. She's just like a completely different person. Like, sure, that makes sense. Like, oh, yeah. what is wrong with you? Like, if you think that something is up, it's probably because something is up. You are well aware of who this person is and what their mannerisms are. And she's not even trying at the base to emulate that in any way. Not that she would have an opportunity because she doesn't get to do any research on who Isabella is other than, you know, listening to their music for half a second. Well, and Lizzie's whole thing is that she's very awkward very bad with public speaking introverted and all this thing so for her to like pretend to be a pop star is like clearly this huge hurdle she's super uncomfortable like we get a mm-hmm. lot of this in like the big makeover scene where paulo takes her to get an outfit for made for her for the big music awards and it's probably the second best scene in the whole thing this whole montage but basically like everyone around here is supposed to have known isabella and they're all like okay you're clearly not her and then Lizzie just goes, I'm practicing my American. I had you all fooled. Yuck, yuck. And the two people like, she talks eh, to when she okay. arrives and they're like, oh, wow, That's your great. hair is like so simple and like blonde. Who did it? She was like, oh, the sun on the island just like bleached it. And they were like, oh, we should go to the island. Like, wow, either you are incredibly dim or you're just aware that this Some is a great. different person it's, and you're not even going to say anything. Clearly a box dye. <laughs> I just want to go back because this line made me laugh a lot when they are out on Palo's Vespa and she says, like, do you even know how to drive this thing? And he goes, this is Rome. No one knows how to drive. It's like, did somebody have like a really bad trip to Italy once? And like, they included this line just out of pure I mean, spite. I've heard that's pretty accurate. Yeah. But honestly. I mean, if you're from a place, that's probably not a thing that you are going to say. That's something that like a foreigner is going to comment on. So to be like, oh, I think they're aware. I don't know. <laughs> a lot of people in Europe, I think, feel that way. It was just such a weird line to me. And probably somebody who lives in a place isn't going to say it. They're not going to say it like that. Like nobody knows how to drive. Like, mm. anyway. Yeah, that was good. I, oh my God. I love the makeover scene so much. It's quintessential 2000s makeover scene. You've got a cover of RuPaul's supermodel playing. I'm a really kind of offended it wasn't the original and also knowing that this is directed by who it's directed by who did a bunch of like queer indies and like yeah you picked that rupaul song that's a great choice i refer to it as a weird kids bop cover of RuPaul. it was a weird kids bop cover but i wasn't mad it kind of fit the whole vibe she's got these crazy outfits on this whole like one that has to be plugged into the wall that lights up the iconic igloo outfit that she, i love the igloo one up. yes <sighs> I'm so mad no one has done that as their entrance look on RuPaul's Drag Race. It was so close with um, Ariel Versace did a a kind of a version of it. And she said the iconic, like, I'm what dreams are made of or whatever when she walked in. She was referencing it slightly, but I want someone to do a full recreation of these looks. Any one of them, but mostly the igloo. They're pretty great. Yeah, the igloo one was definitely my favorite. It's certainly the most wearable of all of the things that she tried on. (laughs) That's so sad to say because it's this inflated igloo she's wearing. I mean, whatever. People wear like those inflatable mm. dinosaur costume things all the time. So it's not really super I would call weird. them wearable though. 
It's like it's super wearable. It's breathable. It's <laughs> okay, maybe not. She doesn't have to be plugged in with a literal yeah, orange extension cord. True. <laughs> that's very true. Uh, it's great. Um, I so I watched this movie twice, and definitely on the second watch through, after the whole makeover scene, also Kate being like, "I smelled acetone as soon as I walked into the lobby." <laughs> yeah, it's like that could be literally anybody, not specifically Lizzie, but sure, just the way that she was like, "You, your brows match. You've got highlights." Just like her fashion eye, just like immediately like zooming so in on good. all of these things. Like you've definitely been out of this hotel room. Like, Okay, Kate. Wow. Uh, I loved it, though. It's oh. so great. It's so Kate. Yeah. So after the, the makeover scene, that's when Paolo's like, actually, we're not just presenting a award. We're also singing a song. Watching it twice, it was like his manipulation of Lizzie is very obvious. Like once you have At this seen. scene, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because oh, and going obvious. back. Yeah, for sure. Going back. Oh, totally. We haven't talked about Sergey yet. Oh, I just, so my only note about Sergey is like, Sergey is a bro. Yeah. He's so this whole time, not, it's not super important, but this whole time, essentially, Paulo has a bodyguard, Sergey, who just like drives close by and like just kind of silently glares at everything. Um, but the whole time, like every time there's this weird chance encounter with them and Miss Ungermeyer and the class, Sergey and Miss Ungermeyer always have this like little, this little moment where Sergey's like, hey, what's up? And she's like super uncomfortable with it at first. Um, which comes back later, but it was just for such like a throwaway, like small character. Every time he's on screen, I'm like you're great, Sergey. I love you. I feel like that's one thing that Disney does really well with their live action movies is like they often have like a background character who really doesn't do anything, but very often like steals scenes. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, and th- that was what the Lizzie McGuire show was good with too. Like even the parents are really funny. The one teacher who basically told her like you're affiliated for Margaret Chen. That teacher was great for the little bit he was there. They have some good side characters for sure. One thing we haven't talked about that we need to is Lizzie's brother Matt and I was gonna get his there, sidekick yeah. Melina because that, that their interplay plot. is definitely through this section of the movie. So the start of the movie is Matt um, manipulating his sister into letting a RC car into her room so that he can videotape her while she's getting dressed as blackmail. And so we get a scene with Matt and Melina and they are looking up. I don't know why they're searching for, uh, for Lizzie while she's in Italy, but they find this paparazzi article about Paolo and Isabella that has Lizzie's picture. And they're just like, they're so great. I was thinking definitely if there was going to be more of them, like older, that they would probably be characters that were going to be put in like a relationship at some point, which I don't want because I, I mean, really think that the dynamic, yeah, yeah, but I think it definitely would be better if it was just Matt and Melina being friends and like she's being this manipulative, overbearing girlfriend to somebody else because that definitely is how she's going to be portrayed. But so much of it has to do with the actress that they have playing her that does she's it really well. Great, I hate Matt though. Like I've got to state it, he's an awful character almost every little brother character in disney that i can think of or older brother character in the case of something like hannah montana they're all terrible like it's just it's never a fulfilling role apart from just being mean like and especially i think with matt he's extra mean to her 
and not even in a super fun way like Melina, who's just like this boss bitch, like we're going to get money out of this. I love her line, like try buying a PS2 with a job well done. <laughs> He's just evil, like evil. He's ruining her life every step of the way and like faking that he misses her and loves her to get the parents to fly over to Rome to catch her in the act and like he's just a little shit and I wrote down in the note something like Lizzie's brother is why I will never have a child among other reasons <laughs> two things one two weeks is a very long trip to go for school like I can't imagine how expensive that would yeah. be to go on but also by this point in time Lizzie's been gone for like three days and they just like dropped a ton of money to fly to Italy like immediately yeah, Matt manipulates them both really well into doing that. He's very good at manipulating. I love that that whole scene where he's like convincing them to like, we need to fly there to check on Lizzie and all this. Um, as he walks in the kitchen, Lizzie's dad is just in the kitchen painting a gnome. Yeah. And it's so perfect because his character is just that kind of guy who would just paint garden gnomes. And I love him for it. I spiritually connect to him. <laughs> No, it was good. I mean, there's lots of things about their whole family that just really emphasizes that they're just a very normal family in most ways. Yeah. Okay, okay. So jumping forward again to back to where we were, um, with respect to Paolo's manipulation, I made a note that Lizzie's a cinnamon role. She's too pure. She's so naive and trusting. Um, And obviously she's being given like this dream situation, which is equally also like her literal nightmare is being put in front of a crowd where she has to perform. Um, But she just buys into it because, you know, when is she ever going to get a chance like this again and doesn't take any opportunity to really question Paolo's motives. Like even when she asks like, you know, you and Isabel are like really broken up. Right. And he's like, Oh yeah, I still love her, but not romantically Mm -hmm. like a sister. And like, that's the kind of thing in any other context, like some guy would be saying to you, as an excuse to cheat on their girlfriend. They're like, oh yeah, she's like a sister to me, but like they're totally still together. And somebody yeah. would just buy into it because they're like, yeah, he seems like he's being sincere. And like, mm, you're being played. And, and a lot of it too is Lizzie's like need to help people. And Paulo really plays into her kind nature and her like need to help people. Yeah. And it's just like acts kind of like a wounded dog. Like, oh if, if you don't help me and I don't get to present this award, our career is, oh no, and Isabella. And, and she's like, kind of gets suckered into this whole thing just like because she's such a good person. Yeah. Just doesn't want to see him ruin his career, even though she's only known him for two it's like, days. oh no, we're going to get sued by our label for like breach of contract. Like, honestly, that's not her problem. Like, she owes you yeah, nothing. But she's just too nice. One thing I want to quickly jump back to with Matt and the parents. And as they're flying, it's just one line, as they're flying back uh, to Rome and Matt like exposes this whole tabloid of Lizzie and her parents now know that it's her and Isabella and they get clued into the plot. And the dad just turns to Matt and goes, tell me what you know that I don't. And Matt just looks at him and goes, only a 14 hour flight. Yeah. <laughs> like, so good. Yeah, it was great. Um, and that kind of leads with Paula's whole revelation. It leads us into them practicing the number for the first time they're in like this abandoned theater and he puts on his song and we're going to start practicing this and this is when we get our first taste of this is what dreams are made of which is such a bop it's been stuck in my head consistently since i've listened to this or watched this movie it is so good 
I don't know how it ended up in this movie, but it's so good. I hated the weird, like, slow ballad version of this song, and I'm glad that was not the final I, version of it. I wasn't mad at the slow ballad. Ugh, it was not good. I wasn't, I wasn't into it. it. That song is a high energy track. Like, that's what makes it a bop, and it is not a ballad. I think it can work either way. It's similar to some of the songs in, like, High School Musical, where they've got, like, the Sharpay version, and then they've got the more ballady version. I think it kind of works. Maybe if a different character was singing it, then I could be okay with it. But like, I didn't like it with Paolo. Yeah. So after this, I think that, no, before this, Gordo has revealed like they're supposed to perform and she asks Paolo about it. And that's when he fesses up. And I liked a lot. This is what was so frustrating about Gordo pushing her to go with this guy in the first place. Cause then he's like, well, I I looked into this and like, didn't you know that they were performing? Don't they plan these things months in advance? Like, don't you think it's weird that he didn't tell you this? I'm like, yes, this is where we needed Miranda to come in and Miranda would be the foil. And Gordo would be like, look, I told you the whole time. Yeah. So again, we just need Miranda for that. I think it's weird for him to play both roles. Yeah. And of course, at this point, Gordo's a little bit bitter that Lizzie's kind of, having a sort of romantic thing with this other guy when he's carrying a torch for her. So his presentation of this information is tinged with bitterness, which makes its reception like not well received. Yeah. You're lying to me. You're just jealous type of thing. Yeah. Um, And this kind of leads into the last act of the movie where, um, They've had this whole performance thing. Gordo's starting to like not really trust Paulo and all this. And there's the one chance time where Miss Ungermeyer decides uh, we need to go back to the hotel for something. And Gordo knows fully well that Lizzie is out with Paulo and she's going to go check on her and the cover is going to get blown. So Gordo does what Gordo always does and he uh, commits ritual seppuku and falls on his sword for her. Basically saying, oh, I'm the one who's been sneaking out. And then he just gets ousted. And immediately she's like, okay, pack your bags, Gordo. You're going home. And then for some reason, then doesn't go immediately check on Lizzie, even though she's sick. There are so Uh, many things that happen in this movie where, like, having another adult chaperone would make sense. Where, like, Lizzie being sick in bed would, like, probably have an adult chaperone stay with her. And... Gordo being sent home on the plane would also involve like an adult chaperone probably making sure he makes it to the airport on yeah. time and gets on the airplane and does all of these things. But nope, it's just like pack your bags and then he's like at the airport by himself. Yeah. So essentially it boils down to he goes to the airport and he meets the real Isabella who's just come back from the island. The island. The island. And he runs into her and goes, hey, do you know this is all happening? And she goes, hey, I know things about Paulo, you don't. And meanwhile, it's like the night of the big performance. Lizzie's parents have arrived there. They're rushing to the performance. Isabella and Gordo are there, and they're rushing to the performance, trying to stop it, because it turns out that, surprise, Paulo is bad all along. And he wants to embarrass Isabella by touting her lookalike on stage, cutting the track, and, oh, look, she is lip-syncing and can't actually sing when it turns out he's the one that was always lip syncing their songs and she could sing because he's the one that wanted to stay doing shitty pop music and she wanted to break off and do uh, real music. But thankfully we have our big moment where Isabella and Gordo get there in time. They're able to convince Lizzie who is hesitant to believe them, but uh, comes around, believes them and they pull a switcheroo, send Apollo out on stage, cut his mic. Oh, he can't sing. He sounds like dog shit. And then the real Isabella comes out while Lizzie's out there. They sing this fabulous duet. 
And then Isabella's like, no, Lizzie, you have your moment. And she goes off as Lizzie is in this fabulous gown, sings this fabulous pop rendition of This Is What Dreams Are Made Of. Fabulous dancers, rips off her uh, dress, turned into bell bottoms. It's great. And then everything's happy. Kind of be where we go. I really liked, I was a little bit concerned um, before they execute the plan when Isabella's like, look, are you going to believe this boy that you've known like your entire life or this boy that you've known for five seconds? And I was like, please don't have Lizzie decide that she's going to believe Paulo. <laughs> Honestly. Because like she goes over to like see where he is in his dressing room and there's like a moment and then she comes back and she's like, okay, what's the plan? And Isabella has no plan at that moment, but she lies. And just like for a moment, I was like, Lizzie, if you come back and you say that you're going to believe Paulo, even though you have literally no reason to trust him, like I'm going to be so mad. So I'm glad that she had the yeah. presence of mind to be like, look, I've known Gordo for a long, long, long time. And he's always been solid for me. It's like, obviously I should trust that he has my best interests over this cute boy. Yeah. I wrote down that as soon as we have Isabella and Lizzie in the same area, it turned into the princess switch for me. The terrible Netflix movie with Vanessa Hudgens, where like Liz, uh, Hillary Duff cannot do an Italian accent. <laughs> even if even if she didn't have to be like in the same scene with herself, yeah. like that accent was capital B bad. <laughs> And she wasn't even consistent with it. Like it no. definitely fell off in a couple of places. And I was just like, girl. Yeah. It was very princess swap or switch, whatever, in not a good way, but still endearing. And I wrote that I loved how Lizzie is clumsy in like a very relatable way. Like I said, much more than like a pixie manic dream girl kind of way where it's like, oh, I'm so clumsy. Aren't I adorable? It's like always very messy very relatable and she's just comes off as so authentic yeah, like there's that iconic shot where they're walking down the red carpet as they're entering yes the awards. that's what this is in yeah. reference to and she falls basically like flat on her oh, face she just eats shit <laughs> it's great but she picks herself up and she's just like yep that happened moving past it like whatever yeah. it's really the most that you can do yeah we get the iconic moment uh when it turns out that paulo can't sing and Sergey turns to him and goes, you tried to set up Lizzie. Lizzie's a good girl. <laughs> Just like, I knew you were great all along, Sergey. I knew it. <laughs> it's wonderful. Keeping an eye out for I like that in the finale people. number, both of Hilary Duff's characters are showing an equal amount of weird midriff. Like not... It's just like a weird amount of midriff. Yeah, there's something about the specific construction of those jackets where it was like the belly button section was like cut out. So that even when she in was like a little rectangle, yeah, it was, it's very weird. And I think it was like very early 2000s style, but I think it's but also that, very specific to like Hillary Duff. Yeah. That reveal of the gown into the bell bottoms was so iconic and was like better than almost any reveal we've had on drag race. It's like, <laughs> this is what someone should have done for the reveal challenge on drag race. Recreate this. It's so good. Cause it's like, kind of a nice dress and then she tears it off into this like very 2000s disco-y tacky bell-bottom look i was kind of into it it wasn't good but i loved yeah, it it's great it was very um a little britney spears too with like the midriff and the cut of it all too yeah i can see that 
So while all of this is going on, like Lizzie's parents and her brother arrive and like all of her classmates like find out where she is and Miss Ungermeyer like kicks the security people like out of the way so that they can get in and they all watch her perform and it's great and they love it and it's like just this incredible ending to this trip, which I think has only been like four or five days at this point and they still have like a whole week of Italy left like (laughs) after this. It's so bizarre. Two weeks is so long. And then we have Kate. I was really sad about like Kate and Ethan. I was like, Kate, please just do better. Like Ethan is not worth it. Ethan's terrible. He's clearly not in high school. He's way too old looking. I like that we get Sergey and uh, Miss Undermeyer getting together at the end. I wrote down, it's like a match made in heaven because they both talk about themselves in the third person. (laughs) It's great. Uh, I mean... I really would have been fine with Ms. Unkermeyer and like not being with anybody like it really. I don't mean, I don't know. I liked it. You don't always have to like make the little side characters get together for no reason. Like it's cute, but also like not always necessary. Also, Generally kind of the character that wouldn't get that kind of an ending too, just because she's like the, the mean teacher one kind of right usually doesn't get that kind of an ending which i thought was kind of sweet i mean i think it would have just been funnier if everybody called her ms ungermeyer and it turned out that she just goes by ms but she's fully married to some like <laughs> rocking dude i mean that would be great yeah too. i like that the parents at the end when they're all sitting around and like taking photographs for the press and all this and it's like we're so proud of you honey you're still grounded for the rest of the summer i mean i can't blame <laughs> them <laughs> i mean she's very irresponsible to be fair, like, if there had been a, an appropriate amount of chaperones, then none of this would have ever happened. <laughs> oh, fully. <laughs> I mean, maybe it would have in some capacity, but, like, not to the extent that it did. Lizzie wouldn't have gotten away with her six shtick if, um, if somebody had been there to keep an eye on her. I thought, just overall thoughts of this movie, one thing that really impressed me on this rewatch was how well it looked compared to like most other disney channel movies because a lot of these don't have a great budget and they're mostly just an extended two episodes mashed together of the show with a slightly higher budget this looked really good like the italy of it all like you could tell it was all filmed there it looked gorgeous the sweeping shots of the city it's funny you say that though because when lizzie is out on the vespa with paolo okay yeah it's like 90 percent is just shots of her face over his shoulder and like not actually any shots of the city except for like sort of wide overhead shots and like nothing oh we get lots of nice wide sweeping shots i'm thinking of like when they're running through that gardens with the waterfalls and when they're like running around in the streets and everything there's some like really nice shots in this movie this all the stuff on the car was clearly a stunt double and then the other thing that i noticed was every time they were on like the the roof of the hotel it was like a little green screening yeah but oh the, the like the fireworks that shot was gorgeous i loved like the square with all the fireworks going off i really liked yeah at the end after lizzie kisses gordo or is that what you're referring to uh no that's like when paulo is taking her i think it's one of the first nights oh right yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. all around and they end up at this uh, big fireworks show and it's like super gorgeous, big fountain, everything. And then it cuts to the shot of Gordo on the balcony, watching it from far, like pining, knowing that's probably where they oh, are. So cheesy sad. when 
Lizzie's like, oh, it's beautiful. And Paolo turns and looks at her and he's like, yeah, you are. And oh, I was yeah. like, Ugh, barf. It was like trying so hard. Yeah. The, the scene at the very end, though, when um, Lizzie takes Gordo up to the balcony and she kisses him. And then there's like, they've left the balcony and then we get um, fireworks in the back. I thought that was like a really cute way of just kind of indicating that like, maybe there's something there. Cause sometimes, you know, it's like you do the thing where you kiss your best friend and then it's like, yeah, that was like a nothing, <laughs> yeah, a nothing I guess thing. We, sh- we should talk about that, huh? The whole, so of course, yeah. At the end we get this scene where they kiss and like, it's, it's every single Disney channel, right? Like all these have the nerdy best friend and the main girl that get together in the movie or the final episode. It's very like Kim Possible and Ron, which, Oh, I can't even start on that. There's like a lot of these and I guess this one doesn't make me as angry as some others. Maybe it's because I know Hillary Duff has come out and said that like her and Gordo dated for a while in high school and then broke it off. And like, yeah, that makes sense. That's like exactly what probably would happen. And they're just good friends now. I think that makes them because they're just coming out of junior high. Like it makes the most sense. Like they would try it and it maybe wouldn't work as opposed to like them yeah. being in high school and like being at like a stage where being in a long-term relationship would make more sense. Like if they were actually graduating high school and they were going into adulthood, then it would be like that transition makes more sense. But to be like, Oh, they end up together. It's just like you said though, like do they always need to end up together? No like and it's always the nerdy best friend and the main girl and yeah very but i mean just the fact that we get this it's cute though slow it's, you know. fireworks like after the fact it's like yeah it's an indication that like there's maybe something between them but it's not like she kissed him and like immediately like there were fireworks like right in front of their face it's just i don't know if that's necessarily how you're supposed to read that scene but that's certainly how i am choosing to read it Uh, So do you have any other final thoughts on the movie? The one thing I would say, just as an aside, is that I loved Paulo's little red car thing. It was kind of like a little smart car, weird thing without a top on it. And it was super cute, super tiny. Reminded me a little bit of my car. It kind of reminded me of that car that kids have on like the... A little bit. I forget what the brand is, but you know what I'm talking about. The little, yeah, the, Price, the red car. Fisher Price yeah, car. It was like yeah. a, a larger, more functional version of that. I don't have a lot of final thoughts. I think in terms of like TV movie that ends a series, it's really good. It's no even Stevens movie, which I will to this day defend <laughs> as like the best one of them all. But, you know, it's good. Yeah, in terms of like a, a movie that ends a TV series, I think this one does a pretty good job. You know, Lizzie's at a point where she's got a little bit more confidence after she's done this performance. You know, she's kind of on an even keel with her junior high bully, Kate. So, yeah, I just I feel like it kind of put, leaves her in a good place and it doesn't close too many doors, but it also doesn't leave too much open, if that makes sense. So what would you rate this on our ketchup scale? I would definitely say that like it needs a little bit of catch up just because it is what it is. But like, I'm not, I'm not super annoyed about the movie for what it was. Yeah. I think I agree. It's one of those things where it's like, it's clearly a Disney channel TV movie type. Oh, it's, it, this, I don't think this one was a TV movie. I think it's in theaters, but it's that kind of Disney channel 
series yeah. ending movie and it's never going to have a huge budget. It could have definitely used twice the budget. It could have used, I mean, Miranda for sure. And it, it, yeah, it's, I think it could use a little bit of catch up. It's that same thing for me where it's like probably on the edge of being perfect as it is just because like, what else are you really going to add to this other than giving it a bigger budget to do a little bit more, maybe fine tuning a little bit of the Paulo story, maybe teaching Hillary Duff how to speak Italian <laughs> uh, probably could use just a little bit of catch up. Well, that's it for us this episode. Join us again next time when we catch up on another movie with each other.